load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to episode 73 of Weekly Weights. I'm Alex Hayes. Here with me is Will. And joining us today is Natalie Hansen. And I just realized that I didn't say Kablamo. Oh, Natalie, can you please say Kablamo for us? Kablamo. Nice. That sounded like Alabama, but we'll (laughs) take it. Kablamo is, that's our patented word. Like, you know, in superhero comics, when they have that onomatopoeic, like someone punches someone and he goes like, kasplat. Pow? Yeah. Kablamo's the weekly weights, you know, noise for effect when we start a segment. So we're trademarking yeah. and we're going to put it on t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- I actually ran into somebody. We're already off topic. This is, this is a shit show. Right? I, I ran yeah. into somebody in a bar last Friday night who was wearing a t-shirt with Kablamo written across the back of it. I sent you a picture, didn't I, Alex? I don't remember. Oh, I sent, yeah, I ran into this chick. It was like midnight and she, yeah, she had Kablamo written across the back of her shirt. So I was so excited. Well, I said to her, are you a Weekly Weights fan? And she acted cool like she didn't know what Weekly Weights was, <laughs> but she was wearing the shirt. So I knew. <laughs> Turns out she works for a company called Kablamo, which I believe has been started in the past few weeks since, since this trend. Yeah, they're, they're sponsoring us now. <laughs> anyway, enough about us and a bit, about, a bit about Natalie. We're thrilled to have you on. So Natalie's a three times, is this correct? Three times IPF world champion in the under 84 kilogram class? Uh, if we count bench press only as, um, as powerlifting, then yes. So two and a half or 1.5? Yeah. 2.33. Okay. 2.3 recurring <laughs> time world champion in the 84 kilo class. Um, you're the founder and a powerlifting coach out of Corvus Strength Co. Um, and you also hold a number of USAPL and IPF records. Um, what are your best lifts in competition? Um, should we start? I'll start with the, the raw so that I can like build up from there. Um, sure. so my best, my best raw, um, in competition is a 197 and a half squat. Uh, that was really good at the time. It was, it was before the 84s blew up, <laughs> um, a 115 bench and a 202 and a half deadlift and then equipped. Um, 273 squat, 202.0 bench, and then uh, 215 deadlift. And so which of those are records? The bench obviously is, if it's 202.0. Squat, bench, and total. Equip total. Crazy. Um, By the way, you said before the 84 kilos blew up. (laughs) There's that American there's um, girl right now. Who's the one that squats like 240 kilos? Yeah, so Amanda Lawrence and then there's Daniela Miller. And they're both like neck and neck. Unbelievable. Yeah. Amanda yeah. won on body weight. Really? Zero world, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. And right. then we have a couple of, um, there's a couple of 84s, like third and fourth in the US that are like really crazy strong too. Yeah, I find when I watch USAPL nationals now, the standard of competition is as high or higher than almost any international meet that you watch. It's just amazing the depth of talent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess that's also it's, a true credit to you that you're sitting right at the top in your division. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really crazy to have seen that happen in uh, my last raw or my last raw meet was in 2016, but earlier that year. So in at the Arnold in 2016, I totaled 505. Um, and that was an American record total at the time. And now we're like well into the 600s. So it's like a hundred kilos on the 84, on the 84 
um, American record total in what three years? Mental. Yeah, I remember Eric Helms spoke about this on Iron Culture, um, where when he had started powerlifting, his goal was to go to the Arnolds, and the qualifying Wilkes was something not that good, like three eighty five, um, which like it's a reasonable Wilkes, like you plainly lift. But then every year since he started powerlifting, the rate at which the Wilkes to get into the Arnold has gone up, has exceeded his progress. And now it's like 450 or 465 or something just to go to the Arnold, which is like an extraordinarily good, you know, extraordinarily good performance. So it's crazy just what the depth of talent's doing. Yeah, it's insane. Anyway, the reason we got Natalie on chiefly is to talk about the differences between equipped lifting and, um, and raw training, or at least to begin with. So first off, can you just give the people who are less familiar with it a rundown of what equipped lifting is and you know how you do it under IPF conditions? Um, sure. So equipped powerlifting is um, when it's the same squat, bench, and deadlift, and the lifters wear single-ply equipment. On squat, they wear knee sleeves. Um, bench press, they wear a single-ply bench press shirt. And then on deadlift, they're wearing a single-ply deadlift suit which looks a lot, sometimes it looks like a singlet on the squat and, um, the squat and deadlift, but, and that's, I think for especially new people or people who don't know about equipped lifting, like they just assume it's a singlet or a really tight singlet <laughs> sometimes. And, um, so, so you'll, so the open division in the IPF is, um, is in single ply. So it's basically open to all equipment up to this certain, um, uh, limitation of, you know, the single ply equipment and then, and then classic is obviously the raw division. Yeah. Right. And so for people who are, who are completely unfamiliar with the concept of equipment, the suits and shirts that you wear give some benefit for lifting the weight. So, you know, they're not, they're not a machine that propels the weight off your chest or off the floor for you, but they do aid in completing the lift. Yeah, sure. So I can get a little bit more into that. So yeah, in the squat, the, the squat, so the, the equipment is made out of the suits are made out of a, a polyester kind of material it's a uh, pretty stiff feeling and so the in the squat the wraps are obviously going to help and then the suit is going to support your hips mostly and that provides um anywhere from a few kilos of assistance to you know hundreds of kilos of assistance and then on a bench press it's a shirt that goes down to the elbows and um it's it provides support off the chest mostly. And then on deadlift, it's, uh, like, it's just like the squat suit, but, um, you start from the floor. So it's helping off the floor mostly. So it's, um, supportive equipment. That's yeah. You're getting, you're getting a lot of carryover out of it. Yeah. So let's, let's go through each of the lifts and let's talk about what are the differences between equipped and raw, the actual execution of the lift. So let's mm -hmm. start with the squat. Okay. So the rules are the same. Um, you're, the standard from the referees is the same. You still have to squat to uh, hip crease below the knee. Um, your knees have to be locked. All that kind of stuff still remains true. But in execution or just kind of the way the equipment helps is that um, there's a hip, kind of a hip harness is what is how they describe it. But basically, there's really thick stitching around the hips of the squat suit. And you um, essentially have to sit back into the suit, um, almost like if you're sitting into a chair, because you need that rebound from the bottom of the suit and the, and then the wraps help with that too. So you're getting like, uh, you're basically spring loaded at the bottom and then it shoots you out from the bottom. Not that it's not that simple, but that's how it works. So a lot of times in, um, 
in execution of equipped squats or single ply squats, you'll see much more um, like a, a hips back kind of position and, um, and, and even more of an upright torso in a lot of squatters. Partially, I think, because um, you can't, these are, these are like over max loads. And so you can't pretend, you can't really like uh, support that on your torso with a like bent over position. Um, as far as successfully executing the, I think the, one of the major factors is um, upper back strength in squatting, because like I said, for me, it's, uh, I squat, you know, around 400 something pounds or, you know, 197 raw. I squat 273 in gear. I can't get away with like rounding my upper back on with 600 pounds on it. Like that's just not going to happen. <laughs> um, so it's, it's managed, it's maintaining your position in squat and, and keeping a really, really tight upper back and, and like, uh, keeping your position perfect. Because if you veer outside of that, you don't have this like raw strength to correct it generally. Do you find that um, between your raw and equipped lifting that the way in which you descend has to change, not just in terms of pushing your hips back, but like rhythm into the hole and things like that as well? It tends to change. So um, ideally you want them to look pretty similar. You want to have, you want to maintain tightness on the descent and then just use your momentum into the hole for a clean kind of dip. Sometimes we call it a dip. Um, so it's all just kind of one motion. However, it's not that easy in application. So you'll often see people who um, descend faster in equipment because they're just kind of like, they need that momentum to, to actually hit depth. And then other people will descend at a you know, more normal speed and then really just accelerate into the hole. So you'll see kind of a, a two-phased squat. And um, that's just also to ensure that they hit depth. So there's a few different styles, but I generally try to, for myself, I try to keep it a fluid motion so that um, I'm not, because who wants to deliberately like change the speed at which you're descending on your way down on, with a, in a squat? Like ideally you would just have enough tension and control to uh, perfectly time that dip and doesn't change your speed at all. Okay. So. Yeah. Oh, you carry on. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so, um, ideally your technique stays the same, but, um, it's, it's a little bit harder to manage that in equipment. So when I imagine squatting equipped as well, the way in which you said you kind of have to force your hips back into the suit, it makes me feel, or yeah, it makes me imagine that errors in balance and in weight distribution in equipped lifting would feel really magnified as compared to raw lifting. And oftentimes with raw lifters, particularly newer ones, you see a lot of weight moving around on the foot um, when they're executing a squat. In equipped lifting, do you find that balance is important or that those errors are magnified or is that not really the case? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Um, I got into a, I had a few weeks of really bad training going into our nationals this past, this year, where I couldn't find my like balance on my feet and notice that every time I came out of the hole, I was coming so fast out of the hole that I was tipping forward and I would like shift forward onto my toes and I would miss a squat. Like, and because I can't, you know, by that point I'm like on my toes, the bar is way too far forward and I can't like correct it with, you know, uh, 260 kilos on my back. So, um, yeah, I think very much so. So you have to toe this line between, um, between like an aggressive descent to use that momentum into the hole 
while also keeping your balance just perfect. Like that's the groove that we talk about. You have to stay in your groove or you're just going to get thrown out and fucked up. <laughs> that's the technical term for it. Obviously <laughs> we should mention that we don't allow any swearing on this podcast. Oh, at all. My bad. No, it's all right. I swear as much <laughs> as you want. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> is there anything else that's enormously different to you um, between squatting raw and equipped or not really? Yeah. The, the biggest thing I think that, that throws people off from the beginning and that you have to really develop a um, tolerance for is the pressure and the sensation that you're feeling. So raw squatting, honestly, like, you feel like you're really tight when you hit the hole and like you're like uh, with heavy, heavy raw work, like you feel like your head's going to explode, like stuff like that when you're, when it's like, you know, a PR attempt and then you put on equipment and, and every single set um, you, you're literally like, you look like your head's going to explode. And so I think that's a really, really trippy piece that people don't really don't, uh, tend to kind of overlook until they've experienced it, but it's that, it's that sensation and developing a tolerance for that sensation. Yeah, um, I, I can, I can relate to that. Cause I, I've spoken to you about this. I did one, um, one session of equipped bench press and yeah. I have exactly what you just explained that feeling like my head was going to explode mm -hmm. the whole time. And like, I was only benching like 20 over my raw max as well. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't even really matter what's on the bar. Like mm. it can, I mean, if it, it can be, um, it can be below your raw max and you're in a, if you're in like a really loose piece of equipment, but it's still going to feel that way because it's pushing all the blood and pressure to your head. Mm. There's no real way to avoid that. That's why a lot of equipped lifters have like their faces swell up or they look purple, um, like after a training session or after a competition, um, that's why, because <laughs> you pop all the blood vessels in your face. I was going to say, I do think powerlifting sort of gives something up to like soccer and swimming and athletics and stuff where in those sports, you have these people who, you know, look great doing the sport and like they have this, like they sweat, but it's kind of like a glamorous looking exertion and stuff. And so they can have them like advertising, you know, cologne and like toothpaste and things like that and looking really healthy and clean and happy. And then we've got powerlifters where we've got blood vessels burst all over our face and we're covered in sweat and look disheveled and feel crappy and look bruised all the time. And just no one's approached me so far from like Giorgio Armani or anything like that to promote their cologne. And I'm thinking it's the sport and probably nothing else to do with me, the person. What do you think, Natalie? Absolutely. Definitely <laughs> the neck veins. If you could get those neck veins taken care of, then, then maybe it would help. Yeah, maybe I just need to de-stress a little bit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very stressed guy. Just lift, lift less weight. Oh, okay. trust me. I couldn't really do that if I tried. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, we've, um, we've covered the squat now. What about the, what about the bench press? Um, the bench press, I think, is the one that's the most different from raw. Um, so regardless of a lifter's grip width raw, you're generally going to max their grip out to the, you know, is it 80 mil, 81, 81, centimeters, 81, 81 centimeters. Yeah. you're going to max them out almost in all circumstances besides like the really small folks. Um, because the idea here is one, obviously to lower the range of motion, but two, you need to get a stretch in the chest plate of the shirt. Um, and so when you, so that's one piece. And then the second piece is just a, a lower touch point. And it's kind of hard to explain the reasoning behind that until you just, if you feel, if you get in a bench shirt, you kind of know, 
Like you're not going to get away with touching high on your chest. And that's probably because that's where the chest plate has a lot of tension. So you have to kind of like give way to some of that tension and touch lower. Um, my technique with equipped bench is pretty extreme. And so I'm like ge genuinely trying to have to bend my elbows the least amount possible. Um, obviously I can't do that raw. So with the shirt though, like I'm touching low, I'm in such an arched position and a wide grip that it's almost like kind of almost like a, a row. Like I'm, I'm mimicking like the Blaine Sumner extreme, um, where raw, you know, I, it looks a little bit more normal. So, so what you're saying for people who, for people who can't envisage this, you say you're trying to not bend your elbows. It's almost like you're doing a straight arm lap pull down, trying to pull the bar to the peak of your arch, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how I describe it sometimes. Um, and, and so, yeah, you're, you're kind of just drifting toward your feet with maintaining, like you need your elbows under the bar still like same, same kind of principles there, but, um, it's just so a much more extreme position. So would you say that the bar path in the equipped bench is a little bit more forward and back than in raw? Uh, not for me, but okay. it can be, it's, okay. it's really different, but my, I cue myself to press straight up. Um, I put myself like I'm putting myself in such an, extreme decline position that I, yeah, my, my path coming down is, is like from, you know, it's from my head to my feet sort of diagonal, but then my press, my, in my mind, it's straight up. And there's definitely a little bit of drifting back, but that's straight up is like when I nail it. And so you said the, the squat suit sort of assists your hips. Um, the bench suit assists you off the chest. Is it assisting you in shoulder flexion, so in bringing your arm up towards the shoulder, or is it assisting you in your bringing your arm across the body? Like, which muscle is um, it really taking the load off? It's really more, it's like you're loading up the shirt across the chest plate. So if you've worn a slingshot or something like that, it's yep. like, it's just the F6. So I only wear, I wear like the beginner shirt and I've never found much success with the more aggressive shirt. So I, I really like have a hard time um, grasping the super katana and the like low cut collar shirts. And it's a different, it's a different kind of uh, technique and, and feeling, but generally speaking, we're stretching the chest plate across and then um, using that, that uh, energy to press the, like to, you know, kind of elastically press the bar out. Sure. Um, and, sense. It kind of makes sense. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that's quite hard to wrap my head around, but I do understand. Now you say it, um, it helps you a lot off the chest. Does that mean that arm strength is really important for people completing equipped benches? Yeah. If you, especially if you have a longer range of motion. So if, if you are my bench press, I'm not really relying on my triceps at the top. I'm carrying through the momentum from the chest because my range of motion is short, but, but yeah, hot, heavy, like heavy tricep work at the top end for a lot of lifters is really important um, because at the top they are having to like actually lock out. And um, that's, so you'll see a lot of equipped lifters do heavy, heavy, like tr three boards and stuff like that. Um, and that's, that's to help their lockout. Sure. Yeah. Cause I really noticed um, I got a lot off the chest and I have quite long arms and I yeah. got sort of, three to four inches from lockout and like it was extremely hard all of a sudden just out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. It just kind of stalls out. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. So cut that in half and imagine like just using the momentum off your chest to just kind of like finish. That's how so I you're do. doing zero lifting. That's what you're saying. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put the shirt on and you have superpowers. Uh, 202 yeah. kilos times zero. <laughs> zero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I presume having a very tight setup is important when you're doing equipped benching, but mm. you, you must have much less freedom of movement when you've got a bench shirt on. And if you're anybody like, like Alex's girlfriend, Chrissy, for instance, her bench setup is quite acrobatic. She, she yeah. does this weird routine standing on the bench and then kicks her legs out, you know, right leg out, left leg out, then stomps on the floor a bit and gets ready. Um, I presume that type of thing is not as possible or easy when you're in a bench shirt. So how do you go about getting set up really tight? Um, so I always, so that once the shirt gets set by your coach or whatever, it's really important to not like lift your arms up. Um, cause you're, cause the chest, just chest plate is set on your chest. And so if you lift your arms up basically above that, you're going to loosen the, the set shirt. So I've always found it really helpful to, um, keep my arms down as much as possible. So I practiced this raw because I wanted to just like, I wanted to get it perfect. Um, and I still try to maintain a little bit of it raw, especially on my, like, you know, if I'm going to be in my shirt that day, my, I'll change my setup. But basically, um, I put my feet roughly where they're going to be. And then I just, uh, like arch back to the bar and, and catch the bar on my hands with my hands like low. So I kind of like tuck my head. It's, it's a little risky cause I can definitely hit my head if I, miss the if I, if I like um don't hit, get it perfectly but that's basically, another cologne that's another yeah. cologne um yeah. advertisement that could go begging if you like bash your head and suddenly you've got you know a broken nose and a bruise totally. yeah go on <laughs> so I set my feet roughly and then I um and then I, I just kind of tip backwards and get my shoulder set I rely heavily on my upper back and neck being um exposed to skin so that it's really sticky and then uh, I basically set my arch with my upper back and neck and then scoot my feet into place that way. So yeah, it's, but I practiced all of that raw because I, I, I knew that I needed to improve my setup and I was just kind of like not really, I was not very deliberate about my setup early on. And when I realized this big you know, gap in my positioning, um, I figured I might as well master this raw. And so that's, that's kind of what I, figured out was the best way. It's not comfortable though. Just like a, a raw bench setup isn't comfortable. Um, th this is like not comfortable at all. Like I want to be out of that position as soon as possible. <laughs> Would you say that the way that you set up is like pretty common in a quick bench or do you do it very differently? I think so. Um, people you'll see very, like you'll see a lot less movement. Um, just kind of like frivolous movement around. Um, people will generally, plant something and then you know sometimes they'll plant their shoulders and bring their feet up onto the bench and do it that way but they're still working to plant their upper back and shoulder and, and neck and then they're going to bring their feet down and pull them back as far as they can get them so yeah i think generally speaking people are pretty uh dialed in on their bench setups cool all right what about what about in the deadlift the deadlift is terrible <laughs> um the deadlift is <laughs> <laughs> you triggered yeah, both you're, of us you're, so you're much. On the wrong so the deadlift is the for for like the vast majority of people the least amount of carryover 
Um, and just like raw, it's, I, you know, in my opinion, it's the most dependent on your leverages, right? What you're born with, because if you can't take a wide sumo stance or you have short arms, like there's, there's no working around that and in, in equipment. And so it's almost like your carryover is going to be even worse because you're just, um, now you're fighting against a suit. <laughs> so, so the, the sumo, so for sumo deadlifting, and that's what like most equipped lifters pull, um, it helps a lot off the floor and then lockout is just, is very minimal assistance. Um, the, the, the reason people mostly pull sumo is because you can get more stretch in the suit at the bottom. So basically in your setup, you can set your hips lower and that's going to create more tension in the suit to pop you off the floor. Um, and it's a lot more comfortable than pulling conventional in a suit, like pulling conventional in a suit is like, unless you are, have freaky, freaky leverages, like for conventional, you're just not going to want to do that. Um, <laughs> just out of pure enjoyment for the experience. So, um, I, for me personally, I have a, I have hips that don't really let me go wide on sumo. Um, I have big legs and I have like relatively short arms. And so it's just kind of a, a miserable combination of things. When I put a suit on, it's, it like compresses my thighs. So my, like the bulk of my thighs is like much bigger. So there's more in the way. And then, uh, and then my short arms are just kind of like, they're good for nothing. So um, I get very minimal. If you can, my PR, my training PR is 222. So on the very best day, I get 20 kilos out of a deadlift suit. But on most days, it's like five. <laughs> what, what would most people get out of a deadlift suit? Because I've seen um, some, I've even seen some um, people lift like deadlift raw in equipped competition. Yeah. Yeah. So people, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty normal. Like it's, it's not great. It's, you know, 15 to maybe 25 kilos or something like that. Um, someone like Priscilla Rivick, um, gets, you know, closer to like 30 or 40 kilos. Maybe I've watched her pull 270 in training. Um, and I've, but she, you know, she pulls 500. So like 225 raw. So um, but those are both in training. So it's, so she gets a, a pretty decent amount, but she has toes to plates, long arms, and basically like she can break it off the floor and then she's essentially done mm. pulling. Same with Ian Bell. He gets a pretty decent amount of carryover. Um, so the, the people who are on the extreme end of the spectrum can get a lot out of, um, their deadlift suit, their equipped deadlift, um, suit, but, but most people it's pretty minimal. So while you guys were having a very important discussion there, I was Googling. Um, and have you ever seen the movie Meet the Robinsons? It's the silly little animated one. I think I know what you're talking about. but Okay. You know, there's a scene where this guy sets a T-Rex called Tiny the T-Rex to chase the boy. And he hides in the corner against a house. And, you, and the, the evil genius or whatever that sent the T-Rex after him is asking why he can't catch him because the T-Rex is bumping his head against the walls and he can't reach him with his hands. And he says, I have a big head and little arms. Well, all I could think about when you were talking then is you as tiny the T-Rex who just can't yeah, catch him. Yeah, that's how I feel when I deadlift. Oh, so yeah. the other thing is if you have short arms, like the setup on the deadlift is, is 
much harder, just like it is. I mean, it's the same way raw, right? So mm-hmm. if you have, if you have um, a deadlift suit on, you're just, so it adds like this another, this additional element of like fighting against the suit to get into position. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty terrible. Sure. So <laughs> here, here at Weekly Weights, we're very anti-sumo because okay. it's cheating. I'm just um, anti-deadlift. Yeah, we're very anti-sumo because it's cheating. And equip-lifting is very clearly cheating also. So and equip-sumo is just like... It maximizes the cheating. Ultimate. Yeah. Yeah, when they yeah. start letting you guys compete using straps as well, it'll just be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll be me checking out. You know that SpongeBob meme that's been doing the rounds? Yeah. yeah. Right on a head out, that'll be me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Let's talk about training. So across a training cycle, do you spend all of your time in equipment or do you cycle it in and out? Um, I actually started, so people just assume that I train like year round in equipment or most of, most of my training is equipment. Like I had someone, we just did a, um, USA powerlifting athletes training camp. And one of the questions someone asked me was, so could you do a, like, could you train for a raw meet and do a raw competition? Like you know, in a few weeks. And I was like, you think I don't train raw? Like, <laughs> what do you think I'm doing? So like 75% of my training is raw. Um, I'm only in equipment, you know, one movement. So one session of squats, one session of bench, one session of deadlift uh, per week for like 10 weeks leading up to competition. And then the, and I only compete twice a year. So like that gives gives you an idea of how often I'm in my gear. Everything else is totally raw. So, um, that's like, it's, it's usually about 10 weeks out that people 10 to 12 weeks out that people start, start in their equipment. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to go about it. So, so I guess I should back up a little bit. There are some people who are in gear year round. Um, you guys probably know, have, maybe you follow Blaine Sumner. He's in equipment like 52 weeks of the year. And um, so that's, there are some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, you are still training your raw lifts more, like most of the time. Um, so as, as you get closer to competition and maybe you're 12 or 10 weeks out, you can start like easing into equipment because it's, you, you can't obviously just put on a suit and, and load up 80% and start working there. So you have to um, work up to that, this, that heavy, heavy stimulus. Um, some ways that people do that is they'll, for squat, for example, they'll start their, their training cycle for a meet in suit bottoms and wraps, or first they'll start in, in wraps only and then they'll, they'll put suit bottoms on for a few weeks and then eventually they put the straps up and that's when you're getting into like the 75 to 80% of your equipped max range. Other people um, follow, follow a similar st- structure, but they that kind of easing into it is really just with like loose equipment. So they'll wear a squat suit, but it's like three sizes bigger than their competition suit. And they'll use the straps up and they'll use wraps with that, but it's a much like looser suit. And then you slowly just work into your competition um, fit equipment. I prefer, um, I prefer as much time as possible to be like doing the competition lift. So I like to wear a loose suit early on and then, transition into my like tighter stuff, you know, like six weeks out or something like that. Um, suit bottoms only for squat and wraps puts a lot of strain on the low back. 
if depending on your style of squat, some people are totally fine with it and other people it just like makes their low back feel like it's going to explode. So I'm of the latter population. <laughs> and um, so I tend to try to keep my straps up as much as I can. And then, um, and then for the bench, you can always use the overload assistance, like a slingshot or a Titan Ram or whatever um, version you prefer. Even like reverse bands is the similar is a similar um, heavier stimulus. So you're doing overload work, but you're not in the shirt yet. Then you put the shirt on and you start like with a high board, like a you know two board, and over the course of weeks, you work down to touching your chest. If there's Oh, you go on. Sorry. Um, I was going to say, I'm just curious if you're moving from like a a loose suit to your competition one and you know, like a loose shirt to your competition one and things like that. Is there a point at which the, like the equipment starts to help you more such that even though the weights are going up, your perception of difficulty in lifting them doesn't, or does it just continue to feel harder when it gets heavier, no matter what? Um, in, yeah, I would say so. It's, it's definitely dependent on the individual and how loose that loose gear is. Right. So like my looser bench shirt is almost exactly the same as my competition bench shirt. It's just more broken in. So, um, it just kind of depends on, on how different the gear is, but yeah, yeah, I suppose you could, you might. Yeah. So, so if you get in a brand new squat suit that fits perfectly and it's like really nice and tight and stiff, um, your heaviest work might feel amazing because, uh, it's heavier so you can get deeper. So therefore you can get more out of the equipment, right? If like, if you can hit depth, um, it's going to feel a lot better than if you don't even get the full stretch out of the suit and the, and the wraps. So yeah, I think you kind of, you're right on with that. And you were saying as well, it's easier to get to depth with heavier weights when you're squatting, just like it's easier to touch with heavier weights when you're benching. Does, yep. does it throw off your proprioception of exactly where you are squatting in a suit or do you have a very good idea of how deep you are? Uh, I, I usually just go until there's some level of pressure in my head that I, I think is probably about right. And then I stand up. But, but the reason, so some people get an up call, right? They, their coach like watches their depth and gives them an up call. Um, but that only works for people who squat a little bit slower. So if you're, I have a pretty narrow stance and a fast descent and, and like nobody can call that one. Um, we've tried in the past and it just doesn't work. So, um, so, and I have to kind of stop myself. Like I can't wait for a call because I'm moving so fast. Like I have so much momentum that like, even if I got an up call, like I probably would still go several inches before I could even turn it around. Right. Um, yeah. So your, your like perception of, of depth and where you are in space is definitely off. I think if you were to rely on an up call to hit depth, you'd be leaving yourself very open to sabotage by sort of nefarious coaches from other countries. Like I remember Alex and I had this, we had this experience. We were in Uzbekistan for a competition at one stage and th- there was an Iranian team there and they had this habit of right when you're about to do a warm up, they'd strip the bar really quickly just so you had to reload it again and throw, um, and throw your lifters off. But to them culturally, it was like every sick, every single second of competition is competition. You do what you have to do to win. They try and intimidate you. They try and stop you looking at the scoreboard, like anything they could. And I can just imagine having some sneaky guy, come up to the side of the platform and just say up just when you're about two inches high, <laughs> just you're, you're enough giving, to get your reds. 
yeah, you're giving this terrible idea to a lot of people. Well, I'm hoping but, Matt Gary's listening because he'll be like, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's a couple more golf yeah. for the US this year. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think you're I think that's that is an interesting thought and I hadn't really thought of it, but I think mostly we just assume in powerlifting that people are good sports, right? And like no one's gonna try to fuck you over like that. But whatever but it takes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean we have we have some pretty heated I don't really know how the like at classic worlds, I don't really know how the warm up room is, but at open worlds, it's, it's pretty intense. Like, mm. like people try to come over and like get under your bar for warm ups when it's like loaded for you. And we have our coaching staff, like has to, you know, like kind of block the platform from people coming over and just like, you know, I'm getting my knees wrapped. And then some like Ukrainian lifter just like marches onto our platform and stuff like that is, it's pretty common and interesting to see, but I think I have a feeling in raw lifting, it's a little, there's a little more camaraderie and, and friendliness like at raw classic worlds, but I don't know, maybe not. I certainly, I mean, that's actually been my experience for the most part, but that definitely did stick with me as being very funny. In equipped lifting though, when somebody does mess with your warmups, so does jump under your bar or strip the bar um, like they did to us, that could throw you off quite a lot, right? I presume timing really matters when you're having your suit put on and taken off and things. Yeah, nice segue. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've been doing this for a while now. This is episode yeah. 73, Natalie. I've been podcasting yeah. for as long as you've been lifting, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's a, um, that's a super important and, and you can get completely thrown off. So um, I, have a, like, I have a story to tell you about exactly that. So one time last year, so 20, uh, 2018 nationals, I was going for my, it was my third attempt squat and, uh, the, the lifter, two lifters in front of me, um, dumped the bar on her third and I'm already, so I told Bryce, like I knew it was, I think it was 272 on the bar. I told him like, give me, oh no, it was 270. It was 274. Cause we were trying to break a record, I think. Um, and I told him like, give me everything you have, like, like all out on this wrap. And he wrapped me like crazy. And then we heard this big crash on the platform. I'm like, I'm already wrapped and getting ready to go up to like get set for my, for my attempt. And my coach comes running, like sprinting across the warm up room or the staging area. And he's like, get him off, get him off, get him off. And we're like, like what? He's like, you know, she had dumped the bar. So they had to pick up, it was, it was 250. So they had to strip the bar, put it back on the rack reload it and then get the next girl like so it was it was gonna like a significant delay and I couldn't be in the tightest wraps ever for any longer than we had planned and then um sure enough we had to unwrap and then but Bryce had like already blown out his forearms like he was done because he (laughs) wrapped me so tight on that one and so we I had to get Bryce wrapped one side and my coach wrapped the other side basically they did it together and I went out for my attempt and I like I from the jump, I knew I wasn't going to like, I wasn't ready for it because the wraps were not as tight and they were not symmetrical either. So it was like that totally threw me off on any other day. Like I, you know, if I had the perfect circumstances, I probably would have um, been, been successful with that, that attempt, but just didn't work out. So you, you've mentioned a couple of times the importance of having like really tight gear and really like uh, really new gear and stuff. Yeah. How long does like a bench shirt or a squat suit last you for? And do you so, ever, do you ever save like your tightest shirt 
or tighter suit just for like the last few weeks and then competition to make it last longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tight gear matters to an extent. Um, and it's also really into like really dependent on the individual. So um, I think that there is a, there is like a top end for what's effective. Basically, if you're wearing such a tight squat suit that you can't feel your feet or that you start getting like, uh, like swelling in your lower leg, like that's, some people do that. And that's like the level of tightness they use, but how are you able to like use your muscles? How are your muscles supposed to engage properly when you've spent an hour in that suit? Like, I just don't believe that that's beneficial. Um, so tight, like tight gear matters. It just needs to fit right. And it needs to be effective for you. So, um, yeah. So generally speaking, people have like their comp, their competition equipment that they only wear, uh, toward the end of their training cycle, like maybe the last four or five weeks. And then before that, it's like, yeah, it's still tight and well fit equipment, but it's a little bit more broken in. It's like maybe the, the backup gear, um, and same with the bench shirt. So yeah, those things matter and you alter, you can alter your gear as your training cycle goes. So if you start with a piece that's like the straps are a little bit too loose each week, you can take the straps in slightly. Um, you're not supposed to do your own alterations, but there's no way for them to like track that. So, well, I think actually in the rule book, you are allowed to alter, but it has to be like along the hemline or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. It has to be along the manufacturers, Mm. but I, but I think they're, Hmm. I thought there was a rule that it has to be done by the manufacturer and it has to be like along their seam, but, but I don't know. No, I think it just says along the, oh. the seam. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I believe you. Hmm. Well, I mean, possibly, possibly they'd want the manufacturer to do it so that they can get money to the manufacturer. So they're inclined to sponsor the IPF. That That's my conspiracy theory, like jet fuel, steel beams analysis of, <laughs> of the whole situation, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I'd love to take a little step back and talk about training again, because Mm -hmm. you mentioned that you do about 75% of your training raw. Um, Mm -hmm. And you also spoke about incorporating the way that you set up for equipped bench in your raw bench setup. Are there other ways in which you've actually changed um, your raw lifting to meet your needs as an equipped lifter technically? I have tried. So on deadlift, I've tried where um, my, my equipped deadlift, I have a wider stance just because I have more support. Like I said, I have hips that don't really allow me to go super wide. And so, but, but in the suit, I can get away with a a slightly wider stance because I just have something to sit into and like some more like support on the hips. But, and I've tried to uh, change my raw sumo stance to that wider positioning. um, And it just doesn't work. (laughs) I just end up with it, like injuring myself in some way. And I've done that on a lot of times like where I just, I forget. And then I, you know, start inching my stance out a little bit wider, a little bit wider. And then I'm like, Oh shit, that's why. <laughs> so, um, so not, not really on deadlift. I mean, people do, but I haven't really gotten away with that. As far as squat goes though, I think it's, you're, it's pretty similar. Um, when you put the gear on your, you tend to take a wider stance with your feet, but that's a stance that, um, generally is not sustainable in a, you know, raw. So not really there, but then on the bench, I don't change anything besides that setup just to, just so that it's kind of dialed in and like, um, I can do it easily in my shirt. 
And so is your concept of the lifts um, that they're, they're different skills across the board or are they basically the same thing with tweaks in your mind? I think they're variations of the same thing. That's how I treat them. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. All right, final question. Um, if a raw lifter wanted to try equipped lifting, where would be the best place to start? I always tell people that, um, so the, the beauty of the tiny equipped world is that people are really generous and want more lifters in it, in this kind of like world. And so generally you can get your first like set of equipment probably for free or nearly free. So um, I think not buying brand new stuff right off the bat is really important. One, because it's not necessary, but also because you get broken in equipment that um, is just going to feel a little bit more natural and not be as in, in like intense of an experience. So um, that's kind of one piece of piece of advice that I try to provide. And like just this last weekend, um, we or this last week, we had the athletes training camp and there was a girl there that was in 84 and she fit a squat suit and a deadlift suit of mine like perfectly. And I just sent her home with them. <laughs> they were like old suits of mine that I don't ever wear. And I have like, you know, a tote of equipment that's just kind of like, I've collected over the years. And so I just like, she tried them on, they worked really well. And so I was like, you can just take them like, you know, and, and trust that, uh, eventually she'll give them to someone else kind of thing. So yeah. So don't go out and like buy the nicest, tightest, best stuff right off the bat. It's just like, um, it's not necessary. Cool. So, um, I want to talk a little bit more about competition stuff. Um, you mentioned the importance of timing warm-ups and stuff like that timing when you put your wraps on um how does the like attempt selection change in the competition versus raw like are the jumps you take bigger is there more variability in the attempt plan that kind of stuff yeah so think about the first piece to remember is that you can only open as um light as you can hit depth with or as light as you can touch with in your bench shirt so that's a limitation right there, right? So if you uh, if your equipment is is so tight or you're uncomfortable in it and you can't hit depth with anything below ninety six percent, like you're in a you're you're gonna be having a bad day. So um, you open generally still the rule of thumb is somewhere in that eighty nine to ninety one percent range, um, but some people have a hard time hitting depth with that, and so they end up cutting depth on their opener and they go up anyway, maybe not all the way to their planned second, but they go up, you know, five or seven kilos so that they can hit depth. Um, so attempt, attempt selection is, has to be more flexible just because there are equipment technicalities that, um, if you like weigh in, you know, you cut weight, you weigh in and then you like bloat up and you are holding on to more water than you are in training and like everything's a little bit more snug fitting that that will make it harder to touch your chest on bench or harder the harder to hit depth so yeah we we end up with more flexibility um and you know the rule the rule being that you never go up after missing your opener is that doesn't really stand on at least on squat and bench in, in um equipped powerlifting deadlift is a little bit more the same you know you you're, it's a, it's off the floor still. So if you can't pull it off the floor, like you can't pull it off the floor. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's more, fl- more flexibility. And then obviously bigger jumps because well, bigger jumps compared to you, like an individual's raw 
numbers just because it's still percentage based. And so um, you can always wrap looser or wrap tighter. So that's an added variable there. Like uh, if you jump 15 kilos, um, you're going to wrap tighter than you did on the opener. So yeah, there's definitely variability in there. Cool. Cool. I reckon we should take a quick break and then we want to come back and chat about coaching men versus women. All right, it's Weekly Weights. We're back with Natalie Hansen. Um, it's episode 73. I'm Will. This is Alex next to me. You can't see him. He's ugly. Um, <laughs> and we're going to talk. We're going to talk a bit about coaching now. Um, and we're going to talk about differences in coaching men and women. So we spoke for Lyle McDonald for quite a while about the physiological differences between men and women. But I think, Natalie, you'd have some really good insights into the actual um, the soft skills of coaching. Um, what are the differences that you tend to see in writing programs and in dealing with female clients as opposed to men? Um, so I saw this, this question when we were talking about it earlier. I actually only coached one guy ever, um, and he, he was like, a mess. So I don't think I can use him as a, as an example. Sounds like, <laughs> sounds mean, like coaching a female. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was a mess emotionally. Yeah, or he couldn't get his, no, he couldn't get his life together to actually get into training. So I don't even really know. Like, I think I saw like three training videos the entire time I coached him. So like three single clips, I mean, wow. um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't really know. Um, so I, I have very minimal experience with coaching guys. I mean, I can, I can infer, um, the dif differences. And I think we generally know, right. I mean, it's, it's known now that like women can handle more volume at a, at a, you know, relatively higher percentage than guys. Right. So that's, we know that. Um, I think as far as frequency goes, like many female clients, especially the ones that I get, which are generally more like novice to intermediate are pretty, untrained as far as like the skills of the power lifts go, especially bench press and any like upper body movements. And so, um, as far as frequency goes, I tend to, to be on the higher side for, um, bench press and really any pressing and just like upper body work, because I feel like a lot of times there's just so much low hanging fruit to, uh, build muscle and develop the skills of bench pressing. So a lot of guys have been bench pressing by the time they start powerlifting, they've still been, they've already been bench pressing for, you know, a few years at least while they're just kind of like dabbling in, in the gym. But women most are guys, just kind of, most guys yeah. have bench pressed for literally every single day ever that they've come to the gym or their bench press history is literally to the day. The first day they walked into the gym up until now, yeah. you know, it's the first thing. Yeah. People and do. Most, yeah. And most women are just like, they're not, that, that's not where they're going to go if they start going to the gym as a casual, you know, casual person. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, we don't, we don't have to like reiterate anything Lyle said. I think, um, women are, women have generally better recovery because estrogen helps with recovery. We know that. Um, and yeah, so I, I mean, I think that that's all pretty well covered. But what about, um, I think the thing that really interests me is the sort of like the attitudes and ways in which people go about, go about training and what motivates them. 
Um, in your experience, are the female clients that you've had very sort of hardcore powerlifters or are they people for whom powerlifting is sort of just like one small part of a lifestyle and a, a self-concept that says they want to be sort of healthy and strong and happy? Yeah, it's mostly the latter. So I would say that most women um, found fitness generally and started feeling like better about themselves and liked being stronger and just kind of enjoyed that process. And then somehow along the way, like kind of like maybe in a roundabout way became a power lifter. I have had a lot of clients who don't even really necessarily identify as a power lifter, but they enjoy the training and like, you know, don't really have intentions of competing. They're just kind of like, I just, I want to lift heavy and I want to like look like I lift. And, um, eventually I try to, you know, like get them to entertain the idea of competition just because I think that gives us a nice, it's a, it's a, a nice way to express your strength and like get another level of that empowerment, um, once you get over the jitters. Right. Hmm. But I think it's a really, if, if they're interested in it and like open to the idea, I think it can add to the experience a lot, but yeah, generally not like a, Oh, I'm a power lifter. Um, and that's how, what I identify as, but more like this is, this is a tool for me to really feel good about myself and, um, and it's enjoyable. So how do you think those attitudes influence the ways in which we, we ought to train people who feel like that, like in terms of both programming and the way in which we talk about lifting and progress and stuff? Yeah, I think that we have to fit the training in with the person's life, right? And with their, where it falls is their priority. And if you have a lifter who really just wants to do the power lifts a few times a week and, and lift a few times a week and fit it around their, the rest of their life, then that's how you should kind of treat it. Um, and you know, it's, it's very different from somebody who's training for international competition where you need a little bit, like we need to be more regimented and, and focus more on other variables, nutrition and recovery and stuff like that. Whereas these folks, it's like, sure, you, you're, you know, oh, you have a, your kid has a birthday party this weekend and you're not going to be able to train. Like, yeah, that's fine. We'll just go to three training days this week. <laughs> like stuff like that. Um, you have to know the athlete and know where, you know, where their limit is and what their motivation is and, and kind of meet them where they are. I think there's definitely, this is a huge topic of things that I don't know what I think about. So I could ramble for a long time. I'll try not to, but I do think, um, I do think people's motivations for engaging in a sport should change the way in which we coach them. And one, like one analogous way I can think about it for men is that a lot, like if men come in with an interest in powerlifting because strength is appealing to them and the sport's appealing to them, but they also come from a place where, where, you know, physique development and bodybuilding and stuff's important. They might be more satisfied and engaged with the program that incorporates some bodybuilding principles and some bodybuilding focused accessory work. Whereas if they consider themselves more of like a technical purist, they might, they might just be more motivated and therefore engage better with a program that is a bit more bare bones and powerlifting oriented. And likewise, I, I think if, you know, if certain women came in motivated by like, you know, health and self-concept and wanting to be strong in a holistic fashion, possibly the way in which we train them should also be different from the women who come in and say, no, like I'm, I'm a super duper like powerlifting chick only. And that's really what I'm here for. I want to be the best lifter in the world only, but the way in which we do so, I'm not sure. Um, why not? 
Um, <laughs> well, no, why not? Um, okay, here's why not. Oh, God. Yeah, Alex is... Um, I'm not sure in the way in which we should change things because if somebody, if somebody comes to me and says, I want to do powerlifting to better my life, you know, it's something I'm doing for health and enjoyment and engagement. On the one hand, I think there's something really rewarding about engaging with lifting as a craft and saying, sweet, well then let's, let's focus on these skills and you can get, you can get, um, you know, reward and motivation from looking back and saying, wow, I've developed as a squatter technically and we engage mindfully you know, with the activities of, yeah, say, squatting, bench pressing, deadlifting, and things like that. So you could still do things from a very minimalist perspective and say, we're doing this as a craft and this is your hobby. But you could also, you could also say, if somebody came in and said, I'm, I'm just here for health and fun, you could say, sweet, well, we'll do some powerlifting. Let's squat and focus on squatting when we're squatting. But then off you go, do some lunges and hip thrusts and leg curls and stuff like that to satisfy, you know, your physique goals or your desire to just have a leg burn. And I think that decision is very individual. Does that make sense? That's why I'm not sure in which direction I would take those thoughts. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for explaining what your, where your confusion is. I think that I completely agree there, and I, that's part of why we get to know athletes, right? As an individual, is to, to know like where their interest lies, and if, and yeah, if I have somebody who just, who really just wants to like focus on their physique or health or whatever, then I'm going to give them a lot more variety and, and like just kind of exercise than um, even somebody who is like, I'm, I just want to do this for my health and I don't feel like competing, but I really like squatting, benching, deadlifting, you know? So we just, I just try to pull that information out of people by asking, you know, what's your motivation? What are your goals? How can we help you achieve those goals? And, um, and then also just recognize that it changes over time too. You might have somebody who thinks that they don't really want to do all powerlifting and they might think they never want to compete. And then they do it for six months and they're like, shit, I want to, I want to do a meet. Like my gym's hosting a meet and now I want to do it. And that's totally fine too. So being open to that change obviously is important. Yeah. I think the same thing applies with someone who does maybe their first meet for fun and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. really does enjoy it really enjoys the competition aspect and then decides to go down the route of then becoming competitive and trying to be more competitive yeah yeah i i agree i think that we even see that too like as lifters get more experienced and and maybe they've done 10 competitions and they're just kind of like man i just i don't really feel like competing right now or for a while and then and give them the space to have two years off from competition specific training or what however much time they need to like maybe it's forever, but, but as coaches, we have to be like more open than just no, you're doing the power lifts. I'm a powerlifting coach and that's what we're going to do. Um, because we're trying to ultimately, like we're trying to enrich people's lives and that's the purpose of, of sport. Um, and that's why we hire coaches is to help them or have them help us get to that point. So, yeah, I mean, I certainly am like that. Um, what you just described, you know, I do competitions. I love competing and I love powerlifting training, but when I'm done, the thing I'm most inclined to do for four, six or 10 weeks at a time after that is go to anytime fitness with my mates and do bicep curls and just shoot shit and hang out because, you know, I also just like training because I like the gym. Um, and I, I think as coaches, when we deal with athletes, the way in which we communicate with them and the expectations and stuff we have should should sort of um, acknowledge those differences person to person as well. That makes sense. For sure. Um, I have some, yeah, some lifters who are like, 
they do a competition they're, they're like you know lo local level competition and they you know they're like itching to get back to squatting benching and deadlifting on the next monday and i'm like all right like <laughs> you know i'm i'm amazed by that but some people are just that way and then other people you know need something else so what about the ways in which um, we communicate to clients and how do you think that should tie in with their motivations? I think the most important piece of any of any coach athlete relationship, and I, I'm sure you guys would agree is empathy and like an understanding. So, and we don't know what that is. <laughs> Anybody who complains to Alex, he just says, look, trust the process TM <laughs> and then off you go. Um, so just being empathetic is like, is more just being open to their, what their experience is and their, their kind of their lens that they see the world through. So, um, that's, if somebody has a complaint, it, you, it doesn't mean you have to, or, or, you know, some, they have, they have something that they don't like about their program. That doesn't necessarily mean you change it on the spot, but it's like being receptive to that um, communication and understanding that them, that you as their coach, you know, there's a, there is a like kind of a power dynamic there. And, and by people being open enough to approach you and say, here's, here's something I'm, I'm struggling with. That's, I think, important to recognize that, that, that honesty is really important and like their openness is really important. And, and that means a lot. And so I, I think trust the process is, totally fine to say. And, and I think that's a, a fine mentality to have, but it's also just making sure that an athlete can comfortably express how they're feeling about something and, um, not just get like a, you know, well, do your program or do your training. Don't complain. <laughs> yeah. And part of the process is that like it is malleable and there are mm -hmm. things that we put yeah. in, the, in the program that sit somewhere on a spectrum. And, you know, sure. we can adjust things if they aren't going to plan or if something doesn't fit someone's leverages or their schedule or it hurts them or whatever the case is. Like we can make changes on the fly and that's like part of then I guess being sort of open enough to communicate with you in the first place. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I have an athlete that goes, that's in a metal band. She's a, she's a singer in a metal band. It's amazing. It's so badass. but she goes on tour. Like they go on legit tours for like weeks, you know, several weeks at a time. And she's like, she starts like hitting a stride and like making a bunch of progress. And then she's like, Hey, by the way, I'm going on tour in two weeks. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> you know, so I just have to like adjust my plan. And, and generally that's like, let's get, let's get training like nice and heavy before you leave. So it feels like we've, you know, done a somewhat of a test and we can have some benchmarks for when you get back. But, but yeah, it's a, it's it definitely throws me for a loop and I'm like, can you train at all? And she's like, yeah, not happening. Like I'm not going to be training when I'm touring with my metal band in Europe. None of, but none of rack. she needs a combo rack yeah. in the back of the van. Yeah. <laughs> so I think this time we're, we're she's actually going to take like some bands with her and, and do some like body weight stuff. She's never done that in the past, but um, so we're making progress in that regard. Nice. So I, I don't think people should ever hijack podcasts just for their own self promotion, but I'm also in a band and oh. we're going to be playing this Friday night. So this episode will be released at 8am. And if you happen to listen to it and have nothing better to do 6pm at the public camera, Ronnie darlings, I'll be there. I will also be there. Yeah, there you go. Not guys. playing, but 
if you see me, come say hello. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say, Natalie? Is it a metal band? No, we, <laughs> we play comics. We're going to play like Brown Eyed Girl and stuff, but, but we can oh, meddle okay. it up a little bit. <laughs> I'll say this one goes to Natalie. Um, what is it's, just, it's just the Weekly Weights theme song for like two hours yeah. on repeat. <laughs> that, people would get really fucked up at that bar. <laughs> yeah, well, you'd have to to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so Alex actually, he mentioned something really interesting in planning this podcast about coaching women um, specifically, which was, which was that many of them are very hesitant to gain weight, um, even when it's beneficial for their powerlifting performance. Is that something that you've experienced as a coach? Absolutely. Um, so that's a, a topic that I think we, we still don't really know what the, you know, how to approach it and how to most effectively, you know, convince a female lifter to gain weight. But the pr- approach that I've used that I, I've found some success with is um, if we're talking about a competitive lifter who, who does meets and um, is, you know, sort of identifies with a weight class, the, the biggest piece that I've found that helps is like the first step is like eliminate the cut. Right. So, so if this, assuming the lifter is cutting a couple of kilos for a competition, um, the step one is, okay, this time you're not cutting, you're not doing your water cut for your competition. You're just going to walk in and weigh what you weigh. And I think that oftentimes the progress that they see um, with even just that like couple of kilo bump in body weight is almost speaks for itself. As long as they're in powerlifting for, you know, the quote unquote right reasons. Um, If they're in it to see personal progress and and growth. And so I, I think that that, like that progress often um, almost does the talking for the coach. And, but yeah, it's still, it still is a really, really tough topic because if uh, you ask a lifter to, or a lifter starts, you know, going into a caloric surplus and starts adding like uh, lean body mass, but also some fat, some body fat, and then they, you know, see themselves a few months down the line, even if they're, you know, like they've gotten significantly stronger, but they've put on body fat. It's, it can be a a jarring experience the first time until you have kind of a, an honest conversation and explain what weight gain really looks like. How have you, um, how has your body weight changed in your competitive career? Did you start as a lighter lifter? Yeah. So, um, I started as a CrossFitter. That's where I came from. That's how I found the barbell. Um, and yeah, and I was sumo deadlift up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You guys aren't even going to air this episode. You're just going to throw it in the trash. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, well, my, my, let's back up though. My two Oh two and a half all time raw PR deadlift is conventional. Oh, respect. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, <laughs> so so i started at like 73 kilos or something like that my first ever meet i was like doing crossfit and somebody literally just encouraged us a few of us at our gym to do the powerlifting meet that was happening that weekend kind of thing and i was like okay sounds good you know and that was when the ipf and usa powerlifting had the 75 kilo class and that was like 2011, I guess, 2012. Um, and so I did my first meet, just weighed in whatever I weighed, 73. 
And then I did a second meet at that body weight um, a few months later, and I qualified for nationals, which was going to be cha- the new weight classes where it dropped to 72. So it went 72, 84. And then I started taking powerlifting more seriously around that same time. And so I trained specifically powerlifting for a month or two or something like that and started like putting on muscle. Right. So I stopped doing CrossFit. I stopped doing all that cardio, all the like high intensity exercise. And I just started powerlifting and I was like, well, shit, now I'm five kilos over. (laughs) Um, so I cut to 72 for my first ever nationals and it was an absolute disaster and then tried to maintain as a 72 for the remainder of that year, which was 2013. And I did like seven meets that year because I I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, I know. I know. So I did, I did seven or seven meets in my first year of competition. Um, I thought it was like in season and out of season. Like that's how I understood how powerlifting was. And I also came from CrossFit. So I was like, just this like hyperactive, I need to be doing things all the time. But I, I started noticing, you know, I was like one year into the sport and I was totally plateaued. Like I was not hitting PRs really ever, or I'd hit big PRs in training when I weighed heavier and then I would cut to 72 and it would like, I'd have a terrible meet. Um, and so around that time, I also qualified for my first Arnold and was going to have to maintain 72. And I was like, this is insane. Like, there's no way I was just getting heavier and heavier in a, and I was like dieting all, you know, the entire time and just like, couldn't hit like, you know, I I should have been making a lot of progress and I should have been seeing progress and I just wasn't. And so I, Matt Gary was actually my coach at the time. And, um, I just decided like, I, I have to go up a class and I looked at the totals and I was like, Oh my God, like, this is insane. Going up to the 84s would have been, you know, my total is just like, it's a baby total compared to those. But I recognized that that was like going to, you know, kind of make or break me as a successful lifter. Um, if I held on to this kind of self-identified 158 and just avoided, because 185 was like, that was so heavy. And it was, the classes were new too. So it was like 75 used to, you know, 75, 90 and 90 was like, that was like way out of, out of reach for me. But 84 was a little closer. It still feel, felt like crazy heavy. Like I could never weigh 185. How, what would that even look like? Anyway, eventually I decided like, this is going to be kind of a defining decision for me as a lifter. And I decided to go up to 84 and I, you know, I, kind of had an initial like jump in body weight, but, um, nothing too crazy. And then I hit a 20 kilo squat PR like in training on my way to the Arnold. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) that's what they're talking about. So I, I think I hit, um, I can't remember exactly, but it was like, a like 60 kilo PR total or something like that from like my you know, best meet as a 72 to my, to three months later when I was an 84. Um, and it was, it was insane. And that what Matt was like, this is what he was, he was like, this is the decision that we were waiting for you to make. Like they were just waiting for me to figure it out on my own. And I'm so glad I did. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how my weight has changed. And, and there's, I still have toyed with the idea of like a cut to 72, but as long as I'm, kind of at the top in the 84s, like I'm not really interested in, in like make changing that until I decide that I'm done competing altogether. And then, you know, potentially would 
just cut down, but um, yeah, that's how it's evolved over the years. And now I cut to 84, so. <laughs> Respect. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a somewhat personal question. Was, um, was much of your reticence in moving up a weight class at all to do with body image or sort of body idealism thoughts? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was, it was like this fixation that I was already, I already identified as like a bigger girl. Like I was like, I'm a, I'm a thicker athlete than anyone around me. Um, when I did CrossFit, I was always like the heaviest on the team. Like I had, I was like, I had at 158 or 160 or whatever, I had a six pack. Like I was not like carrying a bunch of extra body fat, but my coach, our CrossFit coach, who was, I was on a team that competed at the regional level. He was always like, your gymnastics would be so much easier if you lost 10 pounds. Um, and so I, I always had this, I mean, even as a kid and then into like through sports and then into CrossFit competition, I was fixated on, if I just lost 10 pounds, like imagine how much easier these muscle ups would be for me or eat how much easier these pull ups would be for me. And then, um, and then I got into powerlifting and started adding body weight. And it was just kind of like 185 just seemed so like such a high number, like it's almost 200 pounds. Like how could I possibly ever do that? And so it was definitely in, in that kind of, um, that body idealism or just kind of society's expectations of us to be 130 pounds. And yeah, it just, eventually I, I felt like I just kind of got over it. And so I had a big total. <laughs> yeah, a big total. That's good. Um, where do you think powerlifting as a weight class sport sort of walks the line then um, in terms of things like, you know, body weight and body weight stigma and body idealism? Because we do have people like we've spoken about before who, who engage recreationally with the sport where it's probably not as important to them to maximize their competitiveness. But then there are people who are probably on the cusp of being very competitive powerlifting athletes who, like yourself, when you're a 72 are not willing to take that step and put the weight on that they probably ought to, to be maximally competitive. What do you think the role of powerlifting, the sport and powerlifting as a community is in, um, I guess not changing that, but like making that to be for the best. I, man, I don't know. So what's also really interesting is when you have the recreationally competitive or just kind of the casual power lifter who also becomes fixated on a weight class and you're like, what for? Like, you know, you're like, there's no reason that you need to be 63 kilos for this next competition. If you're, you know, you're competing at, in your hometown, you only do two meets a year. You're not going to nationals, like, but there's still this fixation on, oh, but I, but I'm 63 kilos. Like that's my, that's my weight class. But I, yeah, I don't really know. It's hard to say. I, I don't know how we could change it. I don't know how we could change the mentality. I think that it's, it's a bigger problem than just the sport. And I think that that's what you're alluding to. Um, it's a bigger problem than just powerlifting. And I'm not sure. I think we're just seeing the manifestation of that bigger societal problem show up in the sport. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think it comes back to um, why we got into powerlifting in the first place. Like if you got into the gym in the first place to look a certain way and be smaller, then maybe like, for that individual, like staying in a lower weight class is, is ideal. But if you got into powerlifting to be stronger, then like it makes sense that over time your weight's going to gradually creep up. 
So I guess when we have that conversation with someone, you, you know, you need to ask them like, did you do this to be stronger or did you do this to be smaller? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the way you framed it then was very much like a leading question because smaller seems less like, yeah. yeah, Well, like, did you do this to be stronger or to be sexy? Did you do this to be stronger or did you do this to like make a certain weight and, you know, be not as strong if you were three or four kilos heavier? Yeah. 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 So I think also that's a, that question of like, did you do this to be smaller or did you do this to, you know, whatever, whatever kind of variation of that question you use, that's something worth digging into too. Like, why do you want to be smaller? Um, Because smaller, you know, it's, we're, we're in this time where we're just kind of fixated on being smaller and women are like, we want women to feel like they can take up space um, to use a phrase that's used quite often, but, but basically what's your motivation for being smaller? If it's like general health, and or like I want to be able to um, train for like running races or something like that, that that's, you know, a different deal. But if it's just to be smaller because you're constantly trying to get smaller than you currently are in like the present moment, then I think that's problematic. Agreed. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't disagree at all with that. I guess it is a weekly ways we like very definitive answers to very far reaching <laughs> difficult societal questions and I'm not yet satisfied. <laughs> I don't think we've ever provided an original thought. <laughs> Lied to the people. Yeah, that's true. This is the people's podcast where they come in less certain than they, or they leave less certain than they came in. Yeah. Uh, no, definitely something though, like in all seriousness, it is definitely something as coaches that it like, that is hard to discuss. And it is actually something where like, we've had this whole discussion thinking about women, but it is something that definitely happens with men as well. And I think there are twin drives both towards leanness and muscularity with men. And particularly among young, young men that I've coached many, like many who find themselves, you know, they realize they have like a good physique, they're muscular, they look quite good and they're getting stronger. They find all those things really good, but are unwilling to, you know, lose small amounts of definition um, while chasing further gains. They have this frustration, they have this frustration because there's, there's a conflict between their self-concept. They think of themselves as a young, strong man who's getting stronger, but they also, I think they do feel some societal drive towards staying lean and looking good because outside of the gym, they still, you know, they want to look ripped on the beach or, you know, be hot for chicks on Instagram or whatever it happens to be. Um, And so it's definitely something that happens on both sides of the coin. And it's a difficult thing to discuss when you're trying to drive someone towards what might be best for them as a power lifter, but doesn't necessarily gel with, with their motivations if they haven't fully discovered them themselves. Yeah. So that's a really good point. And I I think that we, we kind of gloss over the the struggle that guys have um, at least lately, like there's, you know, there's still a lot of issues with body image, um, especially like you said, amongst younger men, one, one kind of concept that I've been pushing my athletes toward, especially when I see um, kind of symptoms of, of body image issues is like this concept of body neutrality rather than like body positivity. So realistically your body in any given moment is not going to be the same as like, you know, a year ago or a year from now. And like the fact that we're always changing, especially if you're progressively overloading and you're um, like, you're adding muscle mass over the course of years, like you're not going to look the same. And so it's not permanent. And so I, I try to explain that to athletes, if they're in a moment, like, you know, I might get a message from an athlete that just says like, 
I just feel like shit about myself lately. And like, I, you know, I, I don't like how I look and, but her, ultimately her goal is to get stronger and add muscle mass. I'm like, remember that this, this moment is not, that this isn't you, this doesn't define you as a person. And it's not, a, it's not forever. Like you're, it's always changing. And so, um, just kind of disconnecting yourself and your thoughts and your like emotional, um, your emotions from what you look like and, and just trying to be like more neutral about it. So rather than try, rather than trying to say how I am is perfect all the time when how you are is going to change, you say just how I am is like how I look is not all of what I am right. and I'm, I'm not going to let my emotions be driven either way by it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's really cool. Um, Let's wrap it up there. That was a really good discussion. We're going to have a very quick break and come back and hit Natalie with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Weekly weights. Blammo. Just blammo. Yeah, no yeah. cut. Yep. Yeah, that's good. It's quick. It's punchy. I like it. Um, it's weekly weights. What episode is it? 73. We're here with Natalie. Uh, we're going to do the four questions. Question one. If you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, I, I don't know. I got to think about this. So, um, shit. And you, like you guys told me these questions and I was going to be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, actually, this is going to sound. Okay. So the first person that comes to mind, it's going to sound real corny, is my, my mom's mom. Okay. So I never met her, but my mom always tells me amazing stories about, she was like a, a pretty um, ahead of her time, like feminist. And she like, she just kind of was against the, against the norm of like her generation. And my mom always tells me stories about her. She died of Alzheimer's when I was like a toddler. I never really met her. Um, I think that she, my gut reaction would be to say her, my grandma. Um, especially because my mom, yeah, my mom and I are super, super close and really similar. And my mom always says that like, she's a lot like her mom. And so it'd be cool to like sit down with her. And would this be like a girl's night out dinner and drinks and then hit the town or more like a get to know you quiet candlelight dinner? Um, I think it would be, uh, would be like a more quiet dinner with wine. Like I'm thinking like, like dimly lit, um, a nice meal, probably a tasty dessert, but definitely wine. What kind of wine? Um, well, I get migraines from red wine, so it'd have to be white wine. I'm not super picky once we get into the color. <laughs> Ooh, I like red. Yeah, wine. I like. I only like red. But that's okay. It's your dinner. I used to only like red too, but it started giving me migraines, and I had I didn't like white at all, so I had to just sacrifice it and and learn to like it. <laughs> neither of us are invited to the dinner so it yeah, doesn't matter. Fine. <laughs> all right qu- question two is who's your favorite athlete of all time okay i'm gonna go with my gut on this one as well um <laughs> are you predicting yeah <laughs> so my gut tells me daniel cormier okay who's UFC? that is it ufc yeah, yeah UFC. UFC. Um, yeah, he's just like a legendary, he was a wrestler and now, you know, he's, he's been pretty legendary in the UFC. I think mostly it's just that I have the utmost respect for 
um, high level wrestlers, especially like Olympic champions and world champions. Um, that's like a, just a different breed of human. I, my brother was, is a wrestler and was a wrestling, was a D one wrestler in the States and then now as a coach. And so I've just seen that my whole life. And that's kind of the standard of like athlete that I've been, that's kind of been set. And that's like, you know, I, I just don't see any athlete kind of exceeding that work, that, that work ethic and dedication. So I also like Daniel Cormier's like, he gives no fucks. And I just really like that. I admire yeah, that. Yeah. Wrestlers are tough as nails. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think wrestling's a, it's a really cool sport because of just like how pure it is. If it makes sense like this, it's got all the elements of like strength and fitness and diligence to a craft and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's just two people in a small space having like a contest contest person to person with nothing else, you know, I guess there's something very cool about it. Yeah. Cool. Good answer. All right. Question three, which movie or television character do you most resemble? Tiny the T-Rex. That is such a cop out. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) That was my gut reaction. (laughs) It's so funny. It's I, I can't explain. Uh, I'm going to send it to you. You'll like it. Yeah. Tiny the T-Rex. That's fair. All right. Final question. If your life was going to be made into a montage and you could choose the music to set it to, what would you pick? Um, so I, the song that came to into my head, um, when you guys asked that was, it was all a dream. It was only just a dream. No. <laughs> Which one's it was no, all a dream. No. Um, so it's just, it's, what? Who's it by? It's an old hip hop song by Notorious. Oh, that's um, that's juicy. Right? We're still the dream. Oh, ju- oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. called juicy. Yeah, yeah, juicy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that also came to mind, but I don't think that's the right one. Um, but that's just like kind of what I thought of when you said like a life, a montage of life. But I, I this one's tough for me. Um, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of at a loss. Well, before, we'll brainstorm a song for you. But while we're on the theme of funny animated dinosaurs, on YouTube, there's a there's a clip and it's um, it's mesmerized by Biggie. You know, yeah. Biggie, 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 can't you yeah. see? Blah blah. blah. Um, that song set to the kids' TV show Dinosaurs, and like the dad from that show wears this red flannel shirt, and he just looks like Biggie Smalls, and he dances and grooves. And it's got. Was that, the, was that the show where they were like, uh, kind of real looking? They're not very real looking. Okay. It's so funny. I'm gonna send that to you as well. And everybody, look. I don't. I don't think so. Everyone, look up "Mesmerize Dinosaurs" on YouTube. Okay. It's so funny. Um, <laughs> okay, song for you. So, what type of vibe are we thinking? Are you thinking like hip hop or? Yeah, I'm thinking like uh, old school hip hop kind of thing. Like hip hop, hooray. No. It's got <laughs> wow, okay. Never mind then. <laughs> what about a lyrical vibe? What are you you know, what type um, of like, like like appreciative, uh kind of positive experience, that kind of those vibes. I don't know, like, <laughs> like Dear Mama. <laughs> no, <I don't> <laughs> um Appreciative, appreciative, old hip hop. Like positive, like. Uh, oh, uh, na- Nas, I can. Oh yeah, that's a good I one. like that. You know that. That's a good one. No, I'm gonna listen to yeah, it straight good. away. No, that's good. 
We should make oh, an appreciative hip hop Spotify playlist, just collaborative, and fill yeah. it with songs. And then Natalie can like positive. Yeah, positive, that, that song's positive. basically like you can do whatever you want to do. Just do it. Yeah, yeah. 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 it's a good one. You know, you'll one. know if you'll know when you. I reckon I'm going to look it up and listen to it after the episode. Um, that does bring us to an end, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us. That was really enjoyable. Um, can you, your final job is just to let everybody know where they can get in touch with you on social media or for coaching or for anything else that you do. Okay. Um, my Instagram is Natalie.907. Uh, my coaching company is Corvus Strength Co. The website is CorvusStrength.co. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, Corvus Strength Co. Um, that's about it. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, my name's Will. I'm at w.berkmanpt on Instagram. I'm Alex at alexhayes underscore process. And we will chat to you next week. Peace out.